0: Good morning, everyone, or maybe good afternoon or good evening or good night. It could be any time that you are listening to this. Thanks for joining us once again. As you can hear, I am in a pretty buoyant mood today. Why, I hear you ask, I have absolutely no idea. Could it be because I'm back with the normal microphone? Could it be that all my household appliances are functioning correctly today? Could it be that the kids are in school and not some 10-day lockdown? Could it just be that I'm not ghettoed in my bedroom trying to do this podcast? At some points in my life, being ghettoed in a bedroom sounds like a really good idea. I think we've all had enough of the inside of our houses now. So it's been 12 months, hasn't it? Plastered all over the news, reflections in all the journals. And sure, we need to learn lessons from all of this, but I don't need to relive it right now. You don't need to listen to it on the podcast. You can always go back and listen to some of the old ones so that you can relive the sheer terror in my voice. And undoubtedly, there's been tough times. I'm very glad that I wasn't working in the hospital through this period. I think what the um, nurses and doctors and other staff there have had to deal with has just been tough, just really grim for some of them. And I know some of you will have had colleagues who have died of COVID. Some of you may have had family or friends, like I have, who have died of COVID. Some of you may be living with the ongoing consequences of having had COVID yourselves. But there have been positives as well. I think my own family has grown closer together. Work has changed and I I dare say that probably most of us would not want to go back to the days where you've got half a dozen people sat in the waiting room staring at you you because you're running an hour late. And despite many of our own initial reservations, it turns out wearing a mask in the supermarket is not that bad. Indeed, most of us would quite happily trade wearing a mask for the foreseeable future if it would just let us go for even a rainy weekend in Norfolk at the moment. So today on the podcast we're going to try and do what we always do which is look forward to the future. We're going to have a look at the latest research and data and how that might improve the lives of our patients, how it may influence general practice and how it can keep us as clinicians feeling fresh as well. So it is Friday the 26th of March 2021 and this is the Hot Topics podcast. Why, hello everyone. Thanks for joining us once again. It's Neil Tucker here from the MB Medical team. This is the Hot Topics podcast. Thanks for checking in. I think maybe all of our moods are a little bit brighter, aren't they? Spring has sprung, the days are clearly longer. Even better, the clocks are changing this weekend, brighter evenings. I mean, that is, of course, as long as you're listening to this podcast within the first 48 hours of it coming out. Otherwise, the clocks have already changed. Definitely do not change your clock. Terrible idea. You'll end up being really, really early for work next week. So what are we going to talk about on the podcast today? We have got two bits of research on COVID. So we are going to have a look at some of the data that's been published, at least in preprint, from this stoic trial. So here they looked at the use of inhaled corticosteroids in um, general practice based population, looking to see if this could reduce the rate of hospitalizations and uh, duration of illness. We're going to have a look at the Open Safely Cohort study published in the BMJ. That's looking at the chance of catching COVID from your kids. Um, we're going to have a look at a paper in The Lancet published today examining whether three days of antibiotics for a community acquired pneumonia is as effective as five and then we're going to have a little look at some more stuff on semaglutide and consider why there's so much data coming out about this drug at the moment okay so first let's look at the stoic trial and hands up i mean i've been really interested in this study for months and months since they talked about its inception It's been conducted locally in Oxfordshire, uh, uh, around where I live. And yet I completely missed the fact that they'd published their preliminary data in a preprint. So thanks, Rob, from the MB team for bringing this to my attention. Now, the STOIC trial is really interesting because it's one of the few studies out there that's actually looking at a purely general practice-based population and looking for a therapeutic treatment for COVID-19. The background to this study is that, as you and I will have realised, people with asthma and COPD seem to have fared surprisingly well during the pandemic. Uh, You would have expected people with underlying respiratory illness to actually have done pretty badly, given the nature of the respiratory features of COVID. And the hypothesis is that it's the inhaled corticosteroids that many of them are on that seem to have been protected. And so this study was designed to have a look at um, using inhaled corticosteroids early on in mild COVID in people that don't necessarily have respiratory illness to see if it could be therapeutic. And then there's been some more um, data as well. So there's in vitro studies showing that um, inhaled steroids can reduce SARS CoV 2 replication in airway epitheliums. It also seems to um, lead to down regulation of. ACE2 receptor expression and the TMPRSS2 genes. Hey, if you've switched on to the um, MB medical COVID course, then you'll know what we're talking about there. So in theory, it all seems rather promising. So they aim to recruit just under 200 adults who were in the first seven days of their mild COVID illness. And then they randomised them to either usual care or or to an inhaled budesonide at 800 micrograms um, BD, which is a pretty high dose of steroids. The patient stopped the inhaler once they were feeling better. And in the meantime, they collected a range of data, including uh, symptom diary, SATs and temperature, with the primary endpoint being urgent or emergency care or hospitalisation. And secondary outcome measures being things like Self-reported time to symptom resolution, viral symptoms measured by the cold, uh, common cold questionnaire and the influenza patient reported outcome questionnaire, oxygen saturations and temperature. Oh, and they had swabs, so they checked for SARS-CoV viral load as well. So the results showed that the primary outcome emergency care or hospitalization occurred in 10 in the usual care group and one in the budesonide group. 10 versus 1. Make no mistake, if this holds up under scrutiny, this is an amazing finding. Clinical recovery was also faster in the treatment group, so 7 days versus 8 days, plus they had greater levels of resolution at 14 and 28 days follow-up as well, raising the possibility that this might help prevent long COVID for some patients. So that makes inhaled budesonide basically as effective at reducing hospitalisations as having a COVID vaccine. We've all been going crazy for COVID vaccines for very good reason. So I'm a bit surprised that we haven't started going absolutely crazy for budesonide. So why haven't the media gone into an absolute frenzy with this? So firstly, it's just a pre-print publication. So before you and I go and drastically alter our management, we really want this paper to go through a thorough review, peer review process, make any corrections, have people challenge the data, challenge the, um, the statistics, and make sure that it's truly valid. But let's be honest, that hasn't stopped the media and most of us throughout the rest of this pandemic. In the early days, everything was pre we and we were singing it like it was gospel. Well, it could be that the numbers of participants in the trial were small, and even with this, the the study was stopped early. So, in defence of the organisers for the trial, the uh, initial numbers that had been calculated to try and demonstrate a uh, statistical significance were only two hundred. So they didn't need to recruit loads. um, But then they had real difficulty recruiting because as we've seen time and time again in this pandemic, we start these kind of trials when there's lots of COVID around. And then because of lockdown measures and so forth, things go down quite quickly and then they've got no one to enter into their trials. So at some point they had to just call a halt to it because there weren't enough people to sign up. But I don't think that stopping the trial early was something that was undertaken lightly. They actually went back to their ethics and statistics people and said, can we do this? And is this appropriate? Do we have enough numbers? And they categorically said yes. In fact, it was such a positive finding in favour of Budesini that they felt even if they had more participants, it wouldn't change the outcomes significantly. So I think we can be fairly reassured on that front. Could it be that it's because there's no placebo arm? And this is an interesting idea. Normally we would really want a placebo-controlled study. The designers of the study actually said that because of the timescales they were working against, there wasn't time to develop a placebo arm. But maybe it doesn't really matter that much because it's almost less important how much better budetanide might be than placebo than how both or either of them may be compared with normal care. And I can imagine this horrendous scenario where we find that maybe Budesonide and placebo are, have fairly similar level of effects. Both of them are much better than just usual care. But then we can't prescribe anything because, of course, we can't prescribe a placebo to our patients. I can't quite shake the feeling that perhaps this is just the inherent bias that the media has against general practice. For all the great things we do, you don't really hear about it unless it's some swanky thing that's happened in the hospital. But if these results are borne out in the real world, let's not underestimate the impact that this could have. Your GP has the ability to prescribe you a simple treatment that dramatically reduces your chance of being hospitalised by COVID-19. If ever there was an incentive for people to go and get an early COVID test, this has surely got to be it maybe another reason is simply that there are half a dozen trials of the same nature currently being conducted around the world some of which are meant to be much larger than this and so whilst the stoic data is very very positive arguably it's good research and medical practice to wait for that greater body of evidence is stoic a game changer yes i think it will be will it change our game just yet no we probably shouldn't be changing our game right now Am I excited? I'm at least as excited about this as I am about a wet weekend in Norfolk. Now, let's have a look at COVID in kids and the thought that they may be reservoirs for disease, the filthy little things. I am very pleased that my kids have managed to get back to school now without problem and nursery without issue for the last month or so. All of a sudden, the concept of work seems much, much easier. It's like that Julia Donaldson book, isn't it? A squash and a squeeze. I reckon at least half of you will know what I'm talking about. If you don't, but you don't have uh, young kids at home, then yes, it's a good book, but probably stick with more adult literature. Anyway, I digress. Back to the topic at hand. So this was a BMJ paper. So this was a population-based cohort study that was done on behalf of NHS England. And it's basically looking at the risk of infection with COVID if you're an adult um, living with kids versus if you don't live with kids. So they pulled information out of primary care databases and also looked at hospital and intensive care admissions and death records and compared the data between wave one and wave two in England as well. Interestingly, in wave one, there was no increased risk of catching COVID or getting hospitalized or dying from COVID if you lived with children. But in wave two, that risk did go up. So the chance of catching COVID was about 6% higher and the chance of getting hospitalised was about 20% higher, a little bit more so if you have kids in secondary school. Somewhat counterintuitively, the risk of dying from COVID if you've got kids of any age was slightly lower in both waves. Most of this won't come as any surprise to anyone who's actually got kids still living with them. In this second wave, COVID has been rife in schools, particularly secondary schools, One of the GPs in my practice at the moment who's got her nine-year-old in one of the local schools has actually um, had his whole year just shut down at the moment because of the number of COVID infections. The big message that I take from this, kids are a circulating pool of COVID infection. We need to get them vaccinated as well. We can't just vaccinate adults and hope this goes away. So that also means that we need to be doing trials that assess the effectiveness of different vaccines in kids. And please, 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 someone design a kid's vaccine that you could administer um, via the nose like we do with flu. I think the biggest barrier to getting kids vaccinated is if parents have to have them injected. Okay, next, let's come on the infective theme, but let's move away from COVID. And this was an interesting study. Uh, This was performed in France. And it's not a primary care study, I'll be honest. This is something that was done in hospitals looking at patients with community-acquired pneumonia. And they wanted to see whether three days of antibiotics would be enough compared with their standard of eight days. Of course, national guidelines for managing patients with pneumonia in the community in the uk now suggests that we should just use five days of antibiotics i wonder how many of you actually do that how many of you still use seven days do you ever feel uncomfortable about the idea of using that perceived shorter course because historically we've used a week's worth and that's what i like about this study because it potentially gives us some reassurance if three days is good enough then five days for most people should be perfectly adequate So in this study, they were recruiting adults admitted to hospital with pneumonia who were managed on the ward, not needing more critical care input. And then they were given three days of um, coamoxiclav, high dose. So it was one gram of amoxicillin plus 125 milligrams of um, clavulonic acid. But it was given orally, just like we would do in the UK. They then randomized those patients at the end of three days to either have five days of placebo or five days of further co-amoxiclav at the same dose. And this was a non-inferiority trial. So they were looking at the cure rate at day 15 and they'd set their figure of non-inferiority at 10%. So just over 300 participants split equally between the two groups. 77% of the placebo-containing group had cure at 15 days versus 68% of the the full beta-lactam group. So they met their non-inferiority targets, um, but you could almost rephrase it as eight days of antibiotic is non-inferior to three days. No differences in adverse outcomes, um, particularly serious events between the groups and particularly recurrence of pneumonia um, over the course of the next month or so. I guess this just feeds into the notion that most of an antibiotic effect in an infection happens with the first dose, doesn't it? It kind of wipes out massive colonies and then the rest is just kind of mopping things up. So actually for lots and lots of different conditions, we now know that shorter courses are absolutely fine with the potential of those shorter courses helping keep down the constant drive of antibiotic resistance. And then finally, two quick papers on semaglutide. So you might remember me talking about this a couple of podcasts ago, New England Journal of Medicine paper showing that um, once weekly semaglutide, so that's one of these subcutaneous injections of the gliptins that we typically use for diabetes, but um, that's been demonstrated now to help adults with overweight or obesity to lose weight. Now, this has been further supported in a very similar trial in The Lancet published a couple of weeks ago. But this was specifically in adults with overweight or obesity and type 2 diabetes. And it showed that semaglutide achieved an almost 10% reduction on average in body weight over the course of a slightly curious 68 weeks versus a almost three and a half percent reduction with placebo so almost treble the benefit now they've also looked at it as a possible treatment for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis so this is the looming epidemic that's off of all of our radars because we're just not quite sure what to do about it Huge rates of fatty liver disease, largely driven by um, overweight and obesity. And a certain amount of those with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease will go on to develop NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is then the precursor to, to cirrhosis. Now, we don't really know what the rate of progression is, and it's probably not that huge, but given the, the sheer amount of people with NAFLD these days, there's going to be quite a lot of people out there with steatohepatitis. So in the paper, they looked at giving people either um, semaglutide or or and placebo over 72 weeks looking for resolution of NASH with no increase or worsening in the fibrosis of their liver. So they compared three different doses, so 0.1, 0.2 and 0.4 milligrams of semaglutide weekly versus placebo. And they found that the percentage of patients with NASH resolution uh, was around 40% in the two lower dose groups and almost 60% in the higher Um, semaglutide group versus 17% of placebo. But interestingly, they found an improvement in fibrosis of just over 40% of patients on semaglutide and just over a third on the placebo group, which was a non-statistically significant finding. Lots more weight lost on semaglutide. Lots more people felt really nauseated throughout the course of the treatment on semaglutide. Just like I'd speculated before, you just wonder if so much of the weight loss is because people just don't want to eat if they feel sick. I often have to sit in the bathroom whilst my kids go for a poo, waiting to wipe their bums. Frankly, it stinks. Many of you will know what I mean. Sometimes enough to make me feel sick. And I have to say, I rarely think about eating in those circumstances. If I had to sit there all the time, I'd probably be losing weight. I'm not really advocating this as a weight loss program, although now that I think about it, actually, I might get on the phone to Gwyneth Paltrow because this could be the next weight loss fad. We just need COVID restrictions to be lifted a little bit so that if we do feel like snacking, we can just dip into the the nearest communal toilet. It should put us right off. Crikey, I've digressed again. In conclusion, semaglutide can help you lose weight. It can also help make your NASH look better, even if it won't make, necessarily make your fibrosis any better. And while getting outside, doing some exercise, being careful about what you eat is probably the best way to try and lose weight. We know this doesn't work for everyone, and the gliptins are promoting themselves as perhaps the uh, the drug of the decade for weight loss. Plus, I would not be surprised if all the makers of all the gliptins start putting on free tests for NAFLD and NASH. The epidemic will be uncovered and we'll all be treating it with years of gliptin injections before we've even figured out if we really need to. All right. I think that's enough. My tummy is rumbling and without the children at home at the moment, I've got no excuses. I'm just going to go and eat some lunch. So thanks for joining us once again. I hope you get a bit of a break over Easter. Don't forget, we've just started doing the spring hot topics course. So an update, loads and loads of great new topics. Been doing those as a live webinar, but you can catch up on demand on the website or join us after Easter for a, for a live course. I'll also be running another COVID Hot Topics course sometime in April. There's our urgent care course coming up. We've just done the new mental health course and the cancer course. If you're an MB Plus subscriber, it's all on the website. You get access to all of it. Do go and check it out. And in the meantime, feel free, please do get in touch. You can email hottopics at mbmedical.com. You can find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter at GP... Hot Topics or at Dr Neil Tucker and we will be back after Easter. Bye-bye.